everybody, and welcome to episode 117 of the Not Analytics Podcast. I am Ross Markle with my friend and colleague, Andrew Hayslip. Uh, we are back from an unannounced break over Christmas, but uh, during that time, Hayslip, how are things? Yeah, it was it was good. Um, it's it's nice to be back, um, but things are good. We had a we had a fantastic Christmas. Heather and I went and saw her dad down in Tampa. So it was it was good to kind of get out, travel a little bit. I mean, even with Omicron cases surging, which has been just an utter dumpster fire in the NFL. We we went out. We were we were safe to the extent that you can be traveling, and came back uh, happy and healthy. Uh, by the way, kudos, so what about you guys? Kudos on pronouncing Omicron correctly. Thank you. Uh, I actually, Julia's brother's a doctor, and he was saying that that's uh, somebody's going to vote that the most mispronounced word of 2021. Uh, I, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I have to make a conscious effort to pronounce it that way because that is that is not the natural pronunciation in my mind, if you will. I, I had a theory that part of the I don't want the panic, I guess, around Omicron is that is the most ominous sounding Greek letter that I think they skipped Omicron because they were like, people will take this seriously now. Um, (laughs) But in any case, we had a a wonderful holiday, Uh, spent it here in Nashville. Uh, Sadly, the first time I didn't uh, spend the Christmas day with my parents, I think, ever in my life, as a matter of fact. But uh, we did Thanksgiving with them and then Christmas down here with Julia's family. So uh, it was wonderful. Her her mother did such a wonderful job of of making me feel uh, at home and and part of the family for Christmas. So it was a great break. It was a good, good, good week off. And it was like 70 degrees here in Nashville all week. So played golf a couple of times. It's not been a bad holiday. No, that is that is excellent. I guess the I guess the only thing that's really been a bummer of a holiday, a part of kind of this week, if you will, is that we had the passing of NFL royalty um, with John Madden unexpectedly passing away yesterday. I believe he was 85. Yeah, 85 years old. Um, And I I guess I'm not going to go too deep on this. I mean, you don't need me to kind of tell you how influential he is as a coach, as a broadcaster and as a game designer if you will i not not designer is probably the wrong word but i mean i've been playing madden for as long as i can remember um i remember madden probably one was the first year i got it uh so i would have been 12 at the time and i've played it every year since religiously i mean just i i have no i have no words to say about how much of a bummer this is but also how much he inadvertently influenced me by way of that game. And, and, and I was listening to PFF today, and I think one of the coolest things that I heard was when the Madden games were first being designed, they almost didn't make it because John Madden was such a stickler about, no, this needs to be as authentic of an experience with 11 on 11 as possible. And, and at the time, that was a monumental ask. So... I think it's really, really neat and interesting as as well as influential that he was such a stickler for the proper development of the NFL video game and thus my learning about formations and, and, and tactics within schemes and things like that. And so I just thought that was kind of a cool thing to hear today, kind of 
when listening to everyone about his passing. Well, and I mean, if you think about what NFL games were before Madden football, when you had, you know, what some people say is one of the best games of all time, which is Tecmo Super Bowl, where you had no really control or awareness of what was going to happen. There was not, no such thing as a formation. You just had plays and maybe you picked the play that the other guy picked and then your defense would be successful. Transition from basically p- picking eight different plays to, I mean, it didn't take long until you had, com- I want to say complete, but relatively complete NFL playbooks, both offensively and defensively and running mm-hmm. different formations and drafting players. I mean, my favorite John Madden story was from the 2003 season. The t- the Bucks and Eagles were playing. I mean, this is back in Brian Westbrook, Warren Sapp heyday time, right? And it was pouring down rain. I think it was a Monday night game in Tampa. And John Madden said, the trouble with playing in the game is that the ball or playing in the rain is that the ball gets wet. And we all kind of laughed and thought about like, and I, you know, made a joke that like, well, obviously it's that the ball gets wet, right? Like it's raining. Like, and I, I made a joke to my uncle and he said, well, that's not apparent for everybody. Like maybe the trouble with playing in the rain is the visibility, or maybe the trouble is the footing, or there's a lot of other things that could come up, but, but in fact, indeed the ball is getting wet. And, and it, it really taught me at that time that, John Madden figured out the ways to translate the game of football to people who had some, you know, differing levels of knowledge from none to moderate to dangerously little. And I think that that football game is as much fun as it is and, and was and always has been to play. I think what it did to educate a generation of young people about football and the difference in formations, you know, I don't think, Mm -hmm. you know, we would all know what a, what a nickelback is if, you know, Canadian band aside, if it wasn't for that game, right? Like that is a position that is, is incredibly important in football these days. I don't know if we would be as versed in that even as important as it is without Madden. And I don't know that the NFL network, that the, Sunday ticket that red zone, if all, if there's the market for those things without a generation of fan that was educated through such an in-depth football game. Um, and yeah, I didn't, I agree. I, frankly, I'll be honest with you. These are not notes you and I wrote. I just kind of went off on that tirade and didn't really think about it. Frankly, I, you know, I kind of always thought about John Madden was that, I mean, phenomenal broadcaster. I think he's great. I mean, he, he had a 76% winning percentage, but the guy only coached in 142 games. Um, as a, as a reference, Bill Belichick just coached in his 800th game uh, as a head or assistant coach. God. Um, so, you know, he he's one of those guys where it's like he wasn't in the league as a coach that long. He started his I just pulled up his pro football reference page. His first year as a coach, he was 33. He retired from coaching at 42. Think about that. Like and then had a almost 50 year career in broadcasting that, that was just as impactful, if not more so. So, I mean, kind of, I mean, really interesting guy, you know, people all, all throughout the day have been talking about different ways in which he was excellent and impactful in the game of football. But yeah, I think you and I have a slightly different vision of that from, from the way that it educated us and didn't just make us Mm -hmm. passionate and, and appreciative of football. It made us educated about it. And it, informed with the way I think the approach we take to this podcast and that we want to know more and we want to understand it. John Madden knew that people would want to do that. Yep, absolutely. I, I think you don't need to look any further 
than just the episode that that I I mean we talked about it two weeks ago and I talked about it three weeks ago when you weren't on. I played chess. Like that's the the X's and O's of the NFL game is the thing that fascinates me the most. And and you're right, Madden made that relatable and accessible for everyone. Well, speaking of John Madden, uh, you know we're at playoff time, and uh, you know. I don't know how you're doing so far. Uh, I do want to throw a shout out to uh, a buddy of mine, Billy Peden, friend of the show, uh, who uh, whose basement I played countless Madden and Madden Bowls uh, in over the my my formative years. So shout out to Billy Peden. He texted me this morning and said, "Hey, I'm in uh, the the finals of my one and only fantasy league." And I said, "You know, probably nice. because of that awesome podcast to which you listen." And he Definitely. said, "No doubt, no doubt, no doubt." So, uh, how are how are the playoffs passing along for you, Hayslip? Especially, I'm kind of dying to hear about Scott Fishbowl and uh, SBFFC. <laughs> yeah, I I got knocked out of the Fishbowl this week, so it cut to, um, I guess, single elimination is the way is the way to look at it. So, of all of the divisions, uh, coming into Week 16. There were 10 players uh, or 10, 10 people competing and only the top spot this week upcoming week 17 is the finals of the fishbowl. And of the 17 divisions, uh, there were obviously 170 people, 10 per and only number one advanced. So I was not number one this week, uh, not having Kelsey was was rough but i mean the 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 team that advanced in my division just absolutely went off had burrow among many many others so yeah it was it, it was it was tough but had an absolute blast um really enjoyed my time in the fishbowl this year and hopefully get get invited again to play next year uh sbffc uh obviously you and i you and i both got knocked out in the first round of the playoffs but, I think I'm not sure to be honest with you. No, we we did. Yeah, okay. you and I, you and I both got fourth place in our respective playoff or division playoff structure, but that still puts us in the overall pool for the potential grand prize. Now, it's an uphill climb. Like we have a we have a lot of like we need to go off in order to even have a chance at that because. I mean, there are some there are some powerhouse teams, and everyone who makes the playoffs in the entire league regardless of when you got knocked out as was the case you and I getting knocked out two weeks ago now um everyone kind of gets lumped in the pool and only the top one wins the overall couple thousand dollar prize so it's an uphill climb for each of us but we are still alive for the grand prize even if we did not win our divisions uh yeah I I You'll have to explain this more to me off air. I mean, I kind of got that was what was happening, but I've not been able to figure out how to track how my team is doing, though. You sent me that tweet from Matthew Barry a couple of weeks ago about, uh, you know, basically he showed you could have started all guys who were in the top five in their position and put yes. up about 30 points. I feel like that's been me in every one of my playoff games in my home league. I, I tweeted out and a lot of folks on Twitter might have seen I played against a guy who took everyone out of his active roster and only added them in as games occurred. So you couldn't see like what was projected. And this whole debate emerged on Twitter about it. And and I was just like, it's just a douchey move because I, I can, no, I don't think it's, well, well, don't here's think it's why, anything. because it's just, you're making it inconvenient for me 
to go into Excel and figure out what the projection is because you can make the argument of like, well, you don't know who I'm going to play. You, I don't know who you're going to play when you put everybody in your lineup. Like you could still change people at the last second. I mean, just think it's, it's juvenile is the only word, but I think you're, I think you're overthinking this vastly. No, here's the thing. It It doesn't make a difference. Exactly. It It just all, it was an inconvenience because I couldn't see the projection of what the game was going to be. Why are you paying attention to projections anyway? Because I'm just curious who's, how likely I am to win. 11 to 12 points every week, regardless. I mean, Zach Pascal is projected the same number of points half the time as Keenan Allen. Like No, no, because this was the week there were Saturday games and I was just, you know, you want to go and see like, okay, given who's played, what's, you know, and I'm not saying it's going to impact me. I'm just saying I wanted to see how likely am I to win? Like, am I doing well? Am I not doing well? And it was just a pain. That, that's the only thing. <laughs> and, and the worst part of it is my team scored 45 points that week. Like it so was, it really didn't matter. It really didn't matter at all. So um, in any case, I was in seven leagues this year. I think I ended up making the playoffs in five of them. I'm in two consolation games and one championship. So not uh, my best, my best year by any means. And sadly, I'm going to have to write a big fat check for the not analytics analyst league um, to whoever ends up winning the final, which I actually need to look and see who that is. So we can throw maybe a shout out on Twitter here. Uh, Yeah, we'll, we'll recap it next week after, uh, after that is all decided. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there should be a playoff bracket up here somewhere that I should be able to access, but, um, well, while you go and and dig that out, I do want to talk one last thing kind of in the news and notes. I thought was a super classy move by the Los Angeles Rams. And that was activating cam Akers off, off of injured reserve this week. He was designated to return, uh, as a fan. I absolutely love it for Akers from a fantasy perspective. It is entirely irrelevant and, Good God, do not play him, even in the decimated COVID times. Like he's the dart throw of all of all dart throws, and he's a player that you should happily miss on if he happens to come back uh, and, and actually do anything. But I think the thing that I think is really fascinating, and this kind of brings in the the classy component from the Rams, is that most people don't realize this in in the the CBA, but in order to accrue a full additional year of benefits for for retirement, pension, uh, medical, things like that, a player needs to be on the active roster for three games. And this obviously activates acres for that window. And so he is going to he is going to get another seat. He's going to get an additional season counted towards his retirement benefits. And and in retirement, I know, is presumably a long way away from a guy who's what is he 21 22 years old um but i think it's just it's a super classy move for a team that i mean he, they see cam Akers as a foundational building block for the future i think the kind of uh, additional thing in addition to it being a, a great move in isolation for acres is this is a team that is cash strapped and they kind of throw money around in a in an odd way they have two of the three biggest cap dead money hits against the cap in league history with Brandon cooks and um, Jared Goff, Jared Goff. Thank you. Um, And so like, I think this is kind of a selling point to potential free agents of like, Hey, we take care of our own. And it's, it's not one of those things that affects the cap, but it is an extra little carrot to, to bring guys in 
if they if they need that extra little nudge to convince them, hey, maybe I should sign with the Rams as opposed to the, the Giants or, or whatever the case may be. Well, yeah, I mean, completely agree. I think there's a couple of interesting aspects to this. I mean, for one, you know, I don't think most people realize, uh, I mean, there's this huge perception, obviously, and, and, and no one will say more than me that professional athletes are vastly overpaid. Um, but for a guy like Cam Akers, especially if you come in and in your second year, tear your Achilles, right? He's not a first round pick, so he has no fifth year contract guaranteed. He's already a running back, so we know he has a shorter life. The only chance Cam Akers has to receive an NFL pension is if he plays five years, which means he needs to accrue all four of those seasons on his rookie deal and he needs to get signed somewhere else afterward. So, you know, if he goes the way of, you know, Deontay Foreman was fortunate enough to have a, a second chance this year with Tennessee, but, you know, Deontay Foreman was a guy who, who was a, a middle round pick who had a lot of promise, but if he doesn't accrue his five seasons, he doesn't get a pension. And at the end of it, you know, yeah, he's going to make a couple of million dollars. Sure. But there's taxes, there's agents, there's all that other stuff. And now he's got to go find lingering injuries career. for the rest of your life. Yeah. I mean, so it, it's, this is the other side of the NFL and by no means do I, I shed a tear for guys like this. I mean, I, I do appreciate their effort, but at the same time, like it's, it's a lottery ticket. You know, Bill Romanowski once said that he was like, you know, we know what we're playing for here and, and we're rolling the dice with our health and a lot of other things for a chance at glory and, and fortune. And, and, and so, this is, I think, contrasted with a guy like Urban Meyer, who absolutely there was sort of no show of faith in his agreement and ends up basically, you know, Shad Khan said, we're not giving him the money because we don't think this contract was fulfilled in good faith. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this is, I think, the other side of things. You talk about this often with guaranteed money being one aspect of this. But I think there are a lot of other things aside from the ways contracts are structured that people don't often realize how the finances break out. And and I completely agree. You know, if, if you've got a guy in the building who's putting forth the effort and something unfortunate like the Cam Akers injury happens, it, it's good to see that he small things like this, a, a, an activation a, a week or two early, you know, has going to have significant impacts on him for the rest of his life. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, not saying he, you know, the, the money's right or whatever, but I think it's just a classy move, um, regardless of what it means for, for luring future free agents. I just thought it was a really interesting storyline. And, and most people looked at it and said, oh, well, maybe fantasy. And I, you and I, when we were texting, I was like, I don't care about the fantasy. I just think this is kind of cool from a personal story perspective. No, definitely. I think the last thing that I do kind of want to add is everything we just said has absolutely nothing to do with his rehab process. If he comes back in six months after tearing his Achilles, first of all, that's superhuman beyond words. But everything we said has absolutely nothing to do with however many carries he gets, not this week, but even like for the rest of the season. So his recovery and, and the fact that that Sean McVay came out and said he deserved the chance to to come back. Like, that's all great, but I think that this is a great move regardless of if he's in step one or step 101 of his rehab process. Agreed. Let's move on to the Fantasy Academy, and uh, we are continuing our evaluation of draft strategies just to keep you interested, even if you're out of the playoffs, especially championship yeah. week. And uh, we talked last time about tight ends, and this time we want to dive into a couple of our running back perspectives. 
obviously the two most notable draft strategies being RB heavy or going, you know, RB with your first two picks uh, and zero RB, which is one that Hayslip found himself in quite a bit because of uh, yeah. his, his tight end infatuation <laughs> this year. Um, so Hayslip, why don't you kind of lead us off with the, the RB heavy conversation? Yeah, so this is where Ross and I actually found ourselves a lot this year, especially kind of early in the offseason before before tight ends, in my opinion, uh, Kittle and Waller specifically, really kind of started inching up to the back of the second round. Um, but it was really kind of the belief that these mid these mid these mid wound these <laughs> mid round receivers were perfectly fine options, kind of for your starting spots. I mean, you're talking you were talking guys that were like um, DJ Moore, Amari Cooper, CD Lamb, guys like that that were not like top 10 at the position, but we're just kind of outside of that. And, and our thought was, okay, let's grab a couple of running backs at the top and then get a handful of receivers that are ranked somewhere between kind of 13 and 25, if you will. But the real emphasis was the running backs at the top, because in conjunction, we thought that after, I think it was about running back 20, kind of right around that Damian Harris, Miles Gaskin tier, we thought running back fell off a cliff and the guys that that you would be having to take shots on were just an utter crapshoot of question marks and, and, and Lord only knows how they actually manifested. And so honestly, looking at the guys that you would have taken in this ballpark and specifically the names at the top of the draft, this strategy kind of sucked in my opinion. And, and it's not because it was inherently wrong because I, I do think that a lot of times there are guys that you can point to that were right, but it's just that so many got injured at a rate that was higher in my opinion this year than, than has historically been the case. I mean, just if you look at the top 15 running backs in ADP, there's only five guys that have played 15 games so far. It's Jonathan Taylor, Ezekiel Elliott, Joe Mixon, Najee Harris and Antonio Gibson and and like and and of those like sure a couple of them have been amazing like Jonathan Taylor and Joe Mixon you're thrilled to have but are you excited by the fact like again so just looking at the guys that have played 15 games are you excited that Ezekiel Elliott has played every week for you because you most likely have played him every week like he's been okay but they flip-flopped with Tony Pollard quite a bit Antonio Gibson has been in and out of the lineup with injuries. So, I, I mean, I'd almost contend that unless you specifically have Jonathan Taylor, you're not really overly thrilled by the play of whichever RB1, quote unquote, you have, which which kind of brings us to point number two. Well, and that's, and, oh, and I'm ahead. sorry, hey, sub, I just wanted to jump in and say, you know, to kind of uh, contextualize that point. You've got Antonio Gibson averaging 12.4 points per game. You got Ezekiel Elliott averaging 14.4 points per game. Like, I, I think you're almost hindered by their their uh, know, yeah. durability. I mean, they're basically producing. Josh Jacobs is at the same points per game as Antonio Gibson. Uh, Kareem Hunt, Daryl Henderson. I mean, yeah, you could argue that at least you could play him every game, but it's not like he was giving you the kind of explosiveness. And you'd much rather have like an Austin Eckler who's maybe missed a game or two, but when he was in is averaging closer to that. I mean, he's third in the league in points per game right now at the running back position. Right. And so, and that's actually, and I'm glad you say that because that actually brings me to my point too. And it's, it's, it's in that top echelon of guys 
some of the point-per-game numbers are okay, such as Jonathan Taylor, Derrick Henry, Austin Eckler, you mentioned, Joe Mixon, and Dalvin Cook, and those are the top five running backs in terms of points per game. But then there are so many guys sneaking in behind that. Like, for example, Leonard Fournette is running back eight in points per game. James Conner is running back 10. There are guys that all of a sudden are sneaking in that were kind of that that middle to back end group. And they, and that is to be expected. Like everyone who has played fantasy for any amount of time knows that there are going to be late round surprises that really emerge. But generally, that's in an aggregate points setting rather than points per game. And so if you look, following that group, you're suddenly including players like Damian Harris, Elijah Mitchell, Corderell Patterson. Those are all top 15 running backs in points per game. And it pushes out guys like Clyde Edwards-Alaire, Chris Carson, um, Saquon Barkley, even guys, even like Devin Singletary, if, if you wanted to go that deep. So ultimately, if you look at this heavy running back strategy, I think it was a hit if you got lucky with the names. If you, if you happen to have one of the top seven guys, the aforementioned um, Taylor, Henry, Eckler, Mixon, Cook, I mean, even even Zeke or Mixon to, to some degree, I mean, depending on when you can and can't start them, even including names like Chubb and Kamara, um, you're probably happy-ish. But if you got unlucky and you drafted Christian McCaffrey, Saquon Barkley, even Aaron Jones has been kind of disappointing at times. I, I think, I think whether or not you deem this strategy strategy to be a hit or a miss depends strictly on the names. And so ultimately, I think it was mostly a miss in my opinion because of the emergence of guys who who kind of came on from the bottom and. And I think that – and I'm actually – Ross, I'm going to skip ahead in the doc um, because I think the interesting thing is that this strategy, if you missed, was kind of supplanted by two guys that were undrafted that could really kind of skew your perception of if this strategy worked. Like, for example, if you drafted – I don't know. Let's pick a couple of arbitrary names of Christian McCaffrey – and Derrick Henry, and uh, like you wouldn't have both of those unless it was a ridiculous auction. But if you happen to have those guys, but then you also had Elijah Mitchell and Cordero Patterson for God only knows how or why, you might walk away from the idea thinking that heavy running back is a success because, hey, your team's still doing great. But ultimately, the guys that you draft at the top, I think, are very disappointing because it was such a crapshoot. I, I mean, I, I think what I in in me looking into this from from the way I approach the data, the challenge I completely agree with you is the injury factor here. I don't know how much of that is, um, you, you know, an artifact of this season where it just so happened that three of the top four guys really dealt with significant time loss. Um, you know, you could argue four of the top five. Um, or is that just is that a product of the fact that by the time you vault a guy to that position, it's because he's touched it so many times that he's he's going to get injured because of just uh, of wear and tear. Um, but I go back to the point of people often evaluate these strategies based on how their players did and not on the overall strategy. So if you look at the average finish of guys drafted in the top 12 running backs, their average finish is 12.5. So 
there's a lot of dispersion there, but this is what we always say. You don't draft a guy in the top five because you know, they're going to finish number one. You draft a guy in the top five because they have the least chance of finishing outside of the top 15. And Mm -hmm. the average draft position of the next group of 13 to 24, the guys drafted in RB two is almost 30. The average finish position of guys drafted as RB threes is 43 and a half. So your, your loss on that return gets greater. And like nobody basically meets their ADP, right? They can basically only go down when you're drafting running backs that high. The problem is the loss of that increases as you go down. So yes, you're running the risk when you take a guy in the first round. And and I would argue that risk is greater than a quarterback you may have taken in the first round, a, a tight end you may have taken in the first round, or the two wide receivers you would have taken in the first round, um, namely being like a Mahomes and Allen, a Kelsey, uh, or, uh, you know, Devontae Adams, Tyree Kill. Like, yeah, you draft those guys up there, they're probably going to return. The problem is when you go down to looking at the guys that are drafted as RB2s, the, the misses are so much more and the hits are so much fewer. So I, I don't, it sucked this year. I think that's the best way to, that you put it because so it many really guys did. were missing time. But I think that if you're going to have success, that's what you have to do. Uh, I mean, you just have to take that at least one shot. And, and and the last thing I'll say is I think in looking at this and it's not that clearly quantitative, but if you look at the guys drafted in the top half of those RB ones, you know, you obviously have your big five, um, and Nick Chubb being the next guy, you know, I would say, you know, Chubb's the only guy that really kind of returned value. He's running back 12 right now. Uh, and I'm sorry, he's, uh, let me, let me see here. I got his finish. He's running back nine right now in only 12 games. I mean, Zeke is running back six, but we talked about the lack of productivity. The, the bigger hits are coming in the bottom half of that group. And I think that's where, you know, we've talked about this for years. The guys that are at the end of those RB ones, there's one of two things that are either old guys who we think they might tail off. We didn't really have any of those this year. Maybe Saquon was in that, but the other guys were young guys. We weren't Which sure. Which old they would is take loosely off. defined as it relates to him. Right. But the other guys in that group tend to be younger guys who we're not sure if they're going to emerge. Your Jonathan Taylor's, your Austin Eckler's, your Najee Harris's. And I think you've got a better chance of success drafting from that crop than you do from an elite guy, quote unquote, who's maybe been exposed to too many touches, is about ready to tail off, or you are taking an older guy that's kind of middling road, kind of your Chris Carson type. I think the young upshot guys obviously have volatility, but I think that's your best chance at hitting something big. And I think that's what describes the guys that did well this year. Yeah, I don't I don't have a huge problem with that. I guess the big takeaway for next year is kind of in what might be what you're about to describe with the zero running back idea. And that maybe there's, maybe this is this upcoming year is kind of the the time to, to to kind of do the opposite or, or zag where everyone else is zigging with top running backs, where maybe you're looking at a high end receiver or you want to repeat the tight end strategy. So talk to us a little bit about what happened this year with, with zero running back specifically, and that being a strategy. Well, you know, as you said, we push tight end a lot. And, you know, also, aside from that, generally not strategy guys, right? Like, we are much more likely right. to say, play the board, take the best value, uh, value available, and, and see what happens. But 
in terms of what happens if you went zero running back, I don't think this is 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 very different from what you can ex- what you traditionally would have expected. But you know, if you look at sort of the guys drafted in the RB two class, you're talking about um, you know guys who, in terms of ADP, you're getting end of second round somewhere in there. Maybe better for us to look at the RB three class, where you're really talking about round three or four in terms of your draft position. You've got some good ones here, but the problem is when you miss, you missed huge. I mean, you have Raheem Mostert, who you got one game out of. You know, you have um, Trey Sermon, who never did anything. Um, you know, AJ Dillon, who who sparked at times, but really kind of, in my opinion, disappointed uh, in terms of, of of what what I thought this this season might have been. But then you, on the other hand, you have guys like Michael Carter, Leonard Fournette, Melvin Gordon, um, Javante Williams, Damian Harris, who this was the point that we made going into the season. Look, you, if you wait on running back, admittedly, the, the, the hit rate is much lower. You can do it, but you have to be right or you have to take a lot of shots. And I think that's where, um, you know, guys like your James Conner. You know, who you were very mm-hmm. big on Cordero Patterson, who we both lucked out on this year. You know, there's a lot of success stories there. And sometimes we were right, but sometimes we were very wrong. I mean, Philip Lindsay never yeah. did anything this year. Uh, you know, there were, I can probably go down. Zach Moss. Other, Zach I mean, Moss I was, was, I was another big guy. on Zach Moss, Gus Edwards for reasons outside of our control, but his, I mean, I, I think I had a share of him in 11 of the 10 leagues I played in basically. Right. Um, you know, David Johnson, another Devin Singletary, other guys that that people kind of relied on to be some of those late round values. You, you know, I think if you're going to do that, um, you probably want to um, you maybe put a few more bullets in the gun, so to speak. You know, not just take one or two, but really three or four if you can. Um, and I definitely think that's better than putting five or six wide receivers on your roster. Um, and especially if you've gone zero running back, that probably means you have one or two of those very reliable wide receivers, you know, sitting at the top of your roster. So only take maybe four or even three wide receivers if you can week one to give you a better chance of of how things are going to play out. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that is well said. And, and, and I completely agree, because, I mean, if you look at the if you look at the hit rate, like, as you said, it is lower and, and you can kind of sort of point to a narrative for any of these guys where you squint and envision a role. Like we were one of the guys we were very big on was Damian Harris because we're like, okay, he's probably going to lead new England in carries. He has a very defined role and it's going to be, it's going to be his job for the vast majority of the season. And now with kind of the emergence of Ramondre Stevenson, that's becoming a little bit hazy, but you know that that's the game you play when you take Harris. Or, well, and or, I, or anyone for for that matter. And, and I also think you you know we did an episode a couple months ago on how many bagels can you take, right? Like, I, I think ex- knowing what to expect from that position changed a lot, and, and is changing, has been changing. But I think this was the first year truly where people just were like, you know what, there are not that many backs that are going to be in getting all the touches, right? Like. I'm comfortable playing Damian Harris because the guy averaged 13 points a game, right? And I'll take that 
every day if I drafted him where I did, which was, you know, middle of the third round, things like that, where, okay, as long as it's consistent and reliable, sure, he's going to have some 20 point, 30 point games here or there, maybe, but it's it's more likely going to be 12 to 15 points. I'm totally okay with that. Um, you've got to kind of when I have to ask where you took him in the middle of the third round. I'm, his, I'm, his, I'm looking his at his ADP. ADP. His ADP is 62. Damian Harris? Uh-huh. Uh, no, his ADP was 26.7. I'm looking right now on Fantasy Pros. Overall, 62. I, I'm t- are you looking at Damian Williams? No. I mean, I'm, I pulled this from Fantasy Pros today. Don't, make, don't, make, don't question my data, Hayslip. You're going to throw a, a wrench into all the works. This is all kind the work of that weird. I'm, Either way, oh, whatever. Oh, 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 He was a running back 26.7. That's... Okay, all right, all right, all right. That's that's what it was. Okay, so that makes a lot more sense. Yeah, because... Yeah, okay. Okay, fair enough. Whew, I was scared there for a second. <laughs> um, so in any case, um, I think measuring your expectations around that is is... Is, is another thing that's important. And if you can get some studs, you know, I had mentioned at the beginning of the season, a big part of my strategy was give me one stud at every position. Like I'm totally happy to go, you know, tight end running back quarterback wide receiver, knowing that I'm going to have one guy there. And then all I got to do is get 12 points from the other position and I'll probably do pretty well. Um, just another way to think about it. W- one question I want to ask you before we move off of this I think a, a lot of people, especially, you know, in fab situations have said, if you, especially if you don't get an elite running back week one, prepare to swing big with your fab. And in Elijah Mitchell, Mitchell was the case this year in saying that, you know what, if you missed out, there's not going to be that many more chances to grab a guy like that. And if you've got a thousand dollars spending 800 of it on somebody like Elijah Mitchell is maybe not a bad idea. What are your thoughts about that? in so much as it relates to a draft strategy about saying like, well, if I don't get one, I can probably get one after week one. I don't love it as a draft strategy because I mean, the last two years, it has looked great with James Robinson and then this year, Elijah Mitchell and Cordero Patterson kind of and falling into that mold. Al- Alvin Kamara the year before that. Yeah. Two years. Well, I thought he was two years before that. Either way. I, I think that it is not something that I, like to do because I mean we have seen week one guys that have gone off and then kind of faded into obscurity I mean I I, I, it's not the running back position but I remember a few years ago Laurent Robinson with Dallas went off in week one and had I want to say like 150 yards and two touchdowns maybe three touchdowns like it went went completely bonkers everyone and their mother spent every dollar of fab that they had and then just he did nothing the rest of the year so I think you have to be very, very choosy with how you spend your fab. And 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 for running backs, like, yeah, okay, there is a chance that oftentimes something can emerge. But for me personally, I don't like to go into it as a draft strategy because I want to keep a little bit of fab back because oftentimes as bye weeks come on throughout the season, you'll find people that are dropping their handcuffs. And that's where I like to spend. And I, and I like to kind of gobble up handcuffs in the hopes that – I know somebody will pop. Uh, if somebody drops an Alexander Madison because they're having some bye week issues or or this this year with COVID issues, I mean, God only knows what the case may be. But if Alexander Madison was dropped in week seven, that's where I want to spend my money because 
I don't know what the role of somebody like Elijah Mitchell is going to be on a go forward basis. I, I don't the better example rather than Elijah Mitchell is Khalil Herbert. If you had followed this idea and spent all of your money on Khalil Herbert or Kenneth Gainwell or um, I, I don't even know another name, um, um, Dearness Johnson in Cleveland, but he was more mm. kind of the handcuff range. But there are a number of guys that you could have gone out at various points of the season and spent an arm and a leg for thinking that they're going to be a thing going forward. Or, or Johnson's probably not a good example because we knew that that Chubb and, and Hunt were short term um, inactives for for a variety of reasons. But guys like Gainwell, like you could have spent under the presumption that they would be Mitchell or Patterson or James Robinson of last year and just gotten it completely wrong. So I like to hold it back and I like to spend my money on the defined handcuffs that I know are going to be a thing on a go forward basis. Yeah. And I, I will also point out this, you know, whatever happens at the end of this season, the guy's probably going to rush for a thousand yards. Um, but Elijah Mitchell only really had uh, four good games this year, five, five usable games this season. Uh, I mean, he might go down as a talented back and it might be a piece in the future, but you know, it's not like uh, he, he ended up like James Robinson or uh, um, Doug Martin, you know, one of those guys where yeah. boom, they were on the scene. And at the end of the season, they were, you know, a stud the entire time. I think Elijah Mitchell was was if you spent eight hundred of your thousand dollars fab on him, I think you were probably very disappointed by the time it was all said and done. Maybe. I mean, the the, the landscape of the running back position in general, I mean, it's I don't know. pretty bleak this year. Pretty it, 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 it is. Well, speaking of which, let's move into our continuation of our end of season awards. If you'll recall, last time we met, uh, we went through our rising star players where uh, I, I picked Michael Carter and Elijah Moore from the Jets. Uh, Hayslip took Kyle Pitts as guys that maybe not big studs this year, but we're very excited to get next year. Um, this week, uh, we're going to go into two awards with our MVP and our bust of the year. Uh, so, Hayslip, I will allow you first to, to name your MVP of the 2021 season. Yeah, so my MVP, and, and I think it's kind of cheap that, that you and I picked who we did, but so it goes. Uh, my MVP is Cooper Cup, and, and I did this kind of as a function of draft position. His ADP was wide receiver 17, and I think, honestly, Ross and I were even lower than that. Uh, I think you and I each had him in the in the 21, 22 range if memory serves. But I think the thing that really differentiates Cup over anyone else is his points per game. Where he is averaging 21 and a half points per game, and that's just an absurd number. And it's more than three points per game over the number two receiver, which is Justin Jefferson at a little over 18. So Cooper Cup's consistency and his overall value has just been otherworldly. I mean, I, I've got his game log in front of me. He he had two, he had three single-digit point games kind of at the front of the season. Actually, I, that's even standard scoring. I, maybe I should change my filters here. Um, he had one single-digit point game in week four where he put up eight, 8.9 points. But beyond that, I mean, I, we, you've got multiple games over 30 points. I mean, everything, pretty much everything is more than 15. I mean, his reception totals, he's got one game, the aforementioned week four, which was a quote-unquote dud. 
game where he had less than seven receptions. Everything else, his minimum reception total in every game, save for week four, has been seven. And so in a half or, God forbid, full PPR format, it's utterly absurd. So right now he is on pace to be right in line with that Calvin Johnson season of 1960-some-odd, I think 64 yards, and, and and really flirting with that single-season receiving record. And so there's a part of me that kind of thinks they, they make the push to give him 2,000 yards, and I, I would honestly love to see it. I think the question with Cooper Cup is how high does he go next year? And I, I, I honestly don't know the answer to that. I mean, I think you could make a case – that he's the number two player off the board behind only Jonathan Taylor. And I don't think I can knock you for that decision. So Cooper cup is my MVP. And I I think it's, I think it's pretty clear that he should be the first wide receiver off the board next year. I will say as much as I agree with all of your praise of his 2020 season, there is no chance I'm taking Cooper cup in the first round uh, next year. Okay. Just just because of fool me once, uh, Cooper Cup. Okay. Shame on All you. Right. All right. Uh, and he has fooled us so many times with these up and down seasons. I mean, two years ago he was gangbusters. I think he was wide receiver four, seven, somewhere in there, and and okay. went very yeah. high this past year, only to disappoint very very much so. I mean, the the real thing here is the the question of targets. And the guy's had 177 targets. I had to Google what the NFL. That's true. That is absurd. Do you know what the NFL record for targets is? Isn't it like it was Michael Thomas a couple of years ago, if memory serves. And wasn't it like 192 or some sort of something? Uh, It's actually Marvin Harrison has the most targets. Oh, okay. With 200. It was the year. 205. Cup is not on pace for that, is he? What's no? He's no, not. he is not. No, that yeah. puts him on pace for like 195-ish or something. Yeah, yeah. There have been three 200 target seasons. Uh, Marvin Harrison in 2002, Calvin Johnson in 2012, and Julio Jones in 2015. But oh. um, it, you know, it, it's just ridiculous. It's a crazy number. And while I would like to see him break 2,000 yards, because no receiver's ever done that it will probably be in 17 games instead of 16. So, yes. you know, a little asterisk on top of that. But, no, I, th- I think you're you're absolutely uh, legitimate. And, and I would love to see who you would have picked if you, I, you had not seen my pick first. Um, because last year, did we not both pick quarterbacks? I think I picked Mahomes and you picked Josh Allen, if I'm not mistaken. As MVP? Yeah, I don't oh, no, you picked Alvin Cook last year. Probably. That sounds familiar. Uh, so I went n- no quarterbacks for us this year. I'm picking uh, Jonathan Taylor, who, because of this monster season, I am coining a new nickname here and now. Hey, Slip. I am starting. No, to call don't do it. Jonathan Taylor is home improvement because he's Jonathan Taylor touchdown. As far as I'm concerned. Um, That's terrible. It's really good. It's really good. And you it's love terrible. it. Terrible. Uh, three points I would like to make uh, in submission of his MVP candidacy. Uh, the first is the best ability availability. As you mentioned, he played in all 15 games, only 12 of the top 48 running backs drafted by ADP. Uh, and as you mentioned, uh, three, four others in the top 15. 
um, played all 15 games up to this point. Uh, so remarkable that despite his incredible usage and productivity, he's played all the games so far. Uh, the second is consistency. He is on a streak of 12 consecutive double-digit scoring games after uh, two single-digit weeks in two and three. So he only has two single-digit scoring weeks so far. As a reference, Derrick Henry last season had four. And, you know, admittedly, Jonathan Taylor has some more time, so that could go up. But, uh, I mean, we all know how historic Derrick Henry's year was last season, and he's going to be much more consistent than Henry was then. The third thing is his ceiling. I mean, obviously, he had a 50-point game with his 5-TD performance in Week 11. But think about this. In Week 15 against New England, he had 170 yards and a touchdown. That game did not crack his top five performances this season. Um, he's, I mean, he's had three games of 30 points or more. Uh, I mean, his his average is 21.4, somewhere in there. I mean, it's up around kind of peak Derrick Henry uh, scoring. I, I mean, there's, I just don't see other than you had seen who I picked first, how you can really tell me anybody <laughs> other than Jonathan Taylor is MVP. And, and the last thing I'll add is, we spent the whole first half of the show talking about how unreliable RB ones were. And here was a guy you took in the first round and paid off in spades. Um, I, I just think that it's, it's pretty clear cut for me. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't disagree with any of that. I think he probably has to be the, the one a name to my Cooper cup one B. Um, but I think the one thing that is really interesting, two points actually on Taylor that I think are fascinating is the first one is that his offensive line has been moderately banged up, at least kind of relative to expectation. They signed Eric Fisher in the offseason, and he, I think, had an Achilles injury in last December. So he's only come on, and he's he's not quite what he was, but if he rounds back into an above-average left tackle form, like I think that that could be an improvement for Taylor. And the next thing that I think is really interesting, and, and I don't know that this changes, but it might, and so he's only had 45 targets thus far on the season. And, and yeah, I know I, the the existence of Naheem Hines does limit the ceiling of the target number, uh, and that lends itself to 36 receptions, a little over 300 yards for, for whatever that's worth. But if you told me that next year – you took Taylor first overall, and he somehow, some way, ended up with. Uh, and right now, 45 targets is we'll, we'll call it pacing for 50 targets, just for sake of simple math. If you told me 2022 he had 70 targets, I'm not stunned. And this is a team that is still lacking in weapons. We'll see how they address that in the off season. But if, if Jonathan Taylor became more of a factor in the passing game, even alongside. Naheem Hines, I'm not stunned by that. We saw it happen with Derrick Henry, of all people, this year. So, like, yeah, I, I think I, I think that the existence of Naheem Hines stops Jonathan Taylor from entering LaDainian Tomlinson levels of targets, if you will, for a, 1 .1, a 101 overall pick. But it could still be a respectable number that could grow at least a little bit. Well, it's funny that you said that because when I was looking at his kind of overall stat line, I kept thinking about, you know, in comparison to Derrick Henry in 2020, you, you know, always the knock on Henry has been like, God, if he could just get a couple of passes, if he could be involved in the passing game at all, he would clearly be the RB1. And I feel like that's Jonathan Taylor. Like, 
yeah, he doesn't have the, you know, 35 carries a game that you're going to see with Derrick Henry, but I think he's every bit as explosive, powerful, um, and just has that sort of top end production and breakaway speed where the fact that he's getting 45 targets, I mean, you know, up, up, up that to about 50 by the end of the season. Yeah, I think that's exactly where I want him to be. I don't necessarily need that to expand a lot more. I'm just happy to know that there's some presence of that, especially relative oh, no to death. other guys. I mean, he's 101 for me next year. I, I don't think there's really any question about that. No, I, I would agree with that. Let's move on to our bust of the year, which for me is always such a fun conversation because when you talk about looking at data and making arguments, there's a million different ways. Um, but uh, hey, sub, tell me how you looked at your most disappointing player of 2021. So my most disappointing player is a guy that really, really disappointed me for a variety of reasons. And that is Allen Robinson. I And he has dealt with injuries and he's been on the COVID list, I believe. Uh, he's obviously had a rookie quarterback, but you drafted him as wide receiver 11 and you thought that, and, and, and you knew you were going to deal with some amount of quarterback carousel, be it Andy Dalton, Justin Fields, Nick Foles, God only knows, but historically Allen Robinson has been quarterback proof. We, he has been a fantasy wide receiver one with Blake Bortles and Mitch Trubisky and hell me out there for, for what it's worth. I mean, and right now he is currently wide receiver 91 and he is averaging 5.7 points per game in the games that he has played. He has been nothing short of a nothing burger in your roster every week you've played him. And I, I, I don't want to dive too hard into the stats or or anything further beyond that, other than the fact that every time you've played him. He has truly been disappointing. And for a guy that you drafted thinking, okay, at the very least, he's safe. He's he might not win me my league, but he's not going to lose it. He's lost it for you. And so I think that it's not it's not just the numbers on Allen Robinson that have been disappointing, but it's been the perception of what you thought you had that has been disappointing. It even got to that point, like around week six or seven, where people were dropping him. And I was like, suckers, like, I'm right. going to pick him up. I mean, I picked him up in so many leagues. I'm like, he has to regress back. I mean, it just it can't he's be Alan Robinson. Yeah. He's Alan Robinson. It can't be Darnell Mooney this long. He's got about and no, he just refuses to do it. Um, it's It's been really remarkable. And I think because of the context, people are kind of excusing it but i think you're absolutely right i think he's for sure one of the most disappointing players um of, of this season i am going to go with another guy drafted as an rb1 in saquon barkley and you know you mentioned alan robinson's injuries and i think drafting saquon you knew that was a dice roll in terms of his health but if it had only been his health, I would not put him in this category. The guy played in 11 games this season so far. Um, the fact is that he just was not efficient. I mean, despite opportunity among 93 players who have received 70 or more opportunities thus far, that's a combination of carries and targets. Uh, Saquon, I'm sorry, carries and catches. Uh, Saquon ranks 63rd in point per snap. That puts him uh, right around guys like Devontae Booker, Rex Burkhead, Mark Ingram, Miles Sanders. 
Um, you know, it, that's the thing is, I'm sorry, he played in 12 games this season, which not that big a deal. Like, but here's the, Nick Chubb is RB nine in 12 games. David Montgomery is RB 22 in 12 games. Hell, Derrick Henry is still RB 12 and he only played in eight games. Saquon is running back 33 right now. The interesting thing, if I could spin this a little bit into your world, Hayslip, is that I think I'm not saying that I'm like, I think Saquon is bad. I mean, this offense is terrible, despite the fact that over the last four seasons, they have invested in every position on this offense, both through the draft and free agency. Uh, I mean, seriously, think about it. Wide receiver, every position on the yeah. offensive line, quarterback, they have tried it all. And none of that has worked. Worked. I think Jason Garrett is for sure gone. I, the only word I can use to describe him as an OC is feckless. One of my my favorite words and a word I vow to use more in 2022. So my question for you okay, is I'll this. You it. Saquon is entering year four. They have not obviously picked up his fifth year option yet. He's a $7.5 million hit next year. But if the Giants trade him pre-June 1, cost them nothing. Do you think he could move on and... What would you think about Saquon Barkley Kansas City? How insane would that be? They have 28 million in cap space next year, but <sighs> Yeah, but okay, here's here's the follow-up question. Does any team think that Barkley is worth 7-5? Plus the fourth round pick you'd give up for him. Oh, whatever. I do. I think so for sure. I think okay. several here's here's do. here's an interesting here's here's a quote that I'll give you that I that I heard today and 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 forgive me I don't recall the source. Uh, when you, when Saquon Barkley is on the field and he is indistinguishable from Devontae Booker, you know there's a problem. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I mean, ultimately, like that's what it boils down to. I, are there teams that are willing to give Saquon Barkley a shot based on what he was? Yeah, sure, maybe. But I don't know that that is worth the, the price to get him or the, the price that he's going to cost you in terms of cap or, or uh, salary and salary and cap, I guess, in that case. I mean, I, I would definitely take a chance. If I'm sitting there with more than $20 million in, in, to play around with, I would certainly give him a shot. I mean, um, it, it's, it's a one-year deal. You, yeah, you could argue you might want to pick up the fifth year option, but I think for a fifth, sixth round pick to to eat that seven and a quarter million dollars, I mean, hell, that's how much the Raiders are paying Kenyon Drake next year. So uh, I, well, I don't, I, I, don't I don't know that that I don't know that I don't know that that the, being the bastion of that's not the high water mark for... against. Yeah, no, that's that's not exactly great spending, in my opinion. All right. Well, uh, next week we'll dive into our last. Wait, don't you have a bust? I just or, gave it. You, or, I'm sorry. Uh, you do you not want to do the the last segment? No, I'm just gonna, just going to preview oh, our, okay. our our. Oh, I thought you were signing week. off. I was I was very no. confused. I thought you were signing off. No, you know, we've we we've only done this. I mean, 117 times. I at some point I'll figure out your cadences. Yeah, yeah, we'll get there. Uh, next week we'll go over our breakout player and our new award, our nail in the coffin. Uh, which is mm. a player who is, is, has won you and performed well, won you a league throughout their playoff stretch. But we're going to wrap up with I love, you hate, and Hayslip, I know you hate it when I do this, but we are at one hour right now. So let's uh, 
snippy snap on 30 seconds here with each of did our you picks. Just, did you really just snap at me? Did I, that did I hear that? not like a snap at you. That was more like a pick up the beat, the pace. Like I was doing jazz, the jazzy snap. You couldn't I see. I don't it. believe you. I am personally hurt and ins- insulted. And, you know, maybe this DFS lineup is going to take 15 minutes as a result. Well, I might if, do that. If you, you're doing the last seven minutes by yourself then. Um <laughs> All right. So all right, all right. again, I love paid in the playoffs. We're doing a DFS lineup, DraftKings parameters, our way to give you some tips, keep you engaged. Even if maybe you're not playing in your fantasy championship, uh, we'll go position by position. Hey, slip, start off with a quarterback. Yeah, no. So what I did for whatever it's worth, I will caveat my lineup was in the hundred thousand uh, dollar. I forget the name of the of the of the format, but I did the tournament. Um, $3 entry, $100,000 to winner league, uh, 1 million play action, it's called. Uh, and so I did kind of run my lineup with the idea of high ceiling in mind. So my quarterback is Matthew Stafford, $7,100 at Baltimore. Ravens have given up the most points per game to quarterbacks over the last four weeks. Uh, they just lost another corner after their slot corner, whose name escapes me currently. But, I mean, we just saw Joe Burrow absolutely light them up. And so I went with Matthew Stafford at Baltimore. I think it's a slam dunk pick. And I'm actually going to jump in, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to maintain high ceiling with one of my wide receivers. I wanted to stack in a tournament format with Stafford. And I didn't pay up for Cooper Cup because he was unbelievably expensive. But I did go with Odell Beckham because he's actually quietly been okay. He's he's caught a couple of touchdowns recently. He's looked – I don't want to say like New York Giants Beckham, but he's looked like most of Od- of, of, of Giants Beckham. And so I, I didn't want to pay up for Cup, and I thought that $5,700 was a respectable price for what is truly a ceiling play. Like I, if you if you finish in the top 20% – in this format, you still get nothing or very little. But if you're telling me that Odell Beckham has 70 yards and a touchdown with potential for more, I'm not surprised by that given the matchup. Well, um, I'm going to drop my lineup in. I'm entering it as we speak into the same okay. uh, $1 million play action. Um, enter. Yeah. Click again. We're in there. Okay, um, I cannot believe I'm going to do this, but I'm taking Jalen Hurts, and you're not. Uh, he's only sixty six hundred at Washington, who has the weakest fantasy D against quarterback. Meanwhile, Hurts is fourth in QB scoring on DraftKings, and he's the 10th most expensive quarterback. Uh, I think that's pretty easy. Uh, we'll say he had the ankle injury. He practiced in full today. If for some reason he can't go, Derek Carr is my backup option. Okay, that's interesting. All right, so the first running back that I'm going to take is Rashad. Oh, wait, Penny. wait, I'm sorry. I hate to cut oh, you off. But no, since fine. you did a stack, uh, I'm also doing – no, I'm not doing a stack. Never mind. No, I you don't have out. one. Okay. We're limit good. your ceiling. Um, my first running back is Rashad Penny. He has gotten a considerable workload over the last couple of weeks and looks really pretty good. Um, meanwhile, I'm sticking with the matchups of over the last four or over the last four weeks. Yeah. Detroit has given up the eighth most points per game to running backs. So Rashad Penny home to Detroit for $6,100, I think is a very respectable play. Uh, I'll stay with, I'll stay and round out my running back position as well. 
Uh, I went 6,300 for Ronald Jones. They are at the New York Jets. You don't need me to tell you how banged up the Tampa Bay receiving core is. So it wouldn't shock me if they leaned on Ronald Jones for the second consecutive week. I think that even with the 55-yard touchdown scramper, scamper, excuse me, that we saw from Keyshawn Vaughn, he looked moderately uninspired. And quite frankly, that looked like the slowest 55-yard touchdown I've ever seen in my life. Um, and so I kind of I, I went with Ronald Jones in the hopes that maybe he could catch lightning in a bottle because there's no Leonard Fournette this week. OK, um, I am going to start with Jonathan Taylor. Uh, I don't love always spending up, but um, if you're going to do it, Jonathan Taylor is only nine thousand. And the Raiders have the 30th ranked run defense. And I, I mean, there have been times where guys like Christian McCaffrey and Derrick Henry were like 10-5. And I think it's criminal to get him this cheap. Uh, I'm also going to go with DeAndre Swift, who's only $6,000 at Seattle. Um, again, 31st ranked run defense. I think, again, Swift is on the cheap coming back off of injury. And um, Dan Campbell has showed that this team will not quit. And so um, I think that there's no chance that there's an operation shutdown. No, definitely. And Campbell actually came out today in a in a in a press conference session and said that he's actually going to shut DeAndre Swift down for injury after the Green Bay game. Do you Green remember Bay, they played the last week in, of the season? Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, you you're, you're fine. I'm saying that they're shutting him down for injury after the season is over. So like yeah. a little bit of cheekiness by by Dan Campbell. Remember when we were like reading into what he was saying about Jamal Williams is like, oh, he doesn't like DeAndre Swift. I mean, remember those days? Not really, no. Okay. Your wide <laughs> No, I don't I don't remember that at all. So Odell Beckham was my first receiver, and obviously I did have to go moderately cheap, but I went Amonra St. Brown, uh, who as Ross mentioned earlier, has gotten forty-six targets in the last four weeks. They are at Seattle and that awful secondary. Uh so he was six thousand. And then I went Michael Pittman home to the Las Vegas Raiders. And he was only 5,800. I'm a little bit worried about the way that the, the, the Raiders played in the, on the back end earlier in the season. But they've started to give up a little bit more in their defense lately. So I ended up going Pittman because I think he simply has touchdown upside. And that's where I need to be at this point. Fair enough. He, he should have had one last week. I feel like um, you know, eight for 82, I think, was his line. And that's like. That's one of those games you're like, God, that's just that's so close to being eight for 140 yeah. and a touchdown. You know what I mean? Um, I'm also going to go with Amon Ross St. Brown. Um, I don't know if you mentioned this, 46 targets in the last four weeks. And that's not like an anomaly. It's 11-11-12-12, like remarkably consistent share of this passing game. As much as I don't like having two Lions on my team, I'm going to do it. Amari Cooper, I'm taking for 6,600 against uh, Arizona. Last time we did this, I was a week early, even though with Cooper having a touchdown last week. But Arizona has the 30th ranked D against wide receivers, and we still have not had the Amari Cooper breakout game. Uh, I think it's going to be this week. And then lastly, I, yeesh, I don't know. I, I mean, at some point it might happen. But have, he's have a little faith. One of the Amari hardest Cooper. people to rank. I was high on him in the offseason, and we just haven't seen it. Uh, lastly, I'm going to take A.J. Green. I, I'm It's 5,300 at Dallas, so on the other side of the ball from Amari Cooper. I, I know Dallas's D has been on 
unstoppable. And Arizona has been so heartbreakingly bad, particularly Kyler Murray uh, from a fantasy production perspective. But I'm uh, I'm looking for a double regression to the mean here with Dallas's D. Uh, maybe maybe losing a little bit of their recent dominance and Arizona bouncing back and still DeAndre Hopkins not in the lineup. So AJ Green's the best red zone target, I think, for that that uh, Cardinals offense. That's a weird way to pronounce Zach Ertz, sir. <laughs> Fair. I knew, you know what? As soon as I was saying it, I was like, is Zach Ertz more of a red zone target? I'm not sure, but. Hmm. Uh, all right. So my last positions that I will go with, um, I actually went the Philly tight end Dallas Goddard there at Washington. He was $5,100. Um, I just think that he is the most reliable pass catcher, even over Devonta Smith in this offense. So I thought he was a solid picket tight end. And then my flex, I went Rex Burkhead at San Francisco. At this point, I was looking for touches, and he's probably the most reliable to get some amount of them at San Francisco for 5000 San Francisco has been a top 10 defense against fantasy running backs over the last weeks, or excuse me, over the last four weeks. But, I mean, at this point, I'm looking, it was a volume play more than anything else. And then I rounded out my team. Indianapolis defense home to the Las Vegas Raiders. I am going um, a couple of bargain plays here. Uh, first off, Brevin Jordan's only 2,800, who is the rookie tight end from uh, University of Texas. No, Oregon State, Oklahoma State. Anyhow. Uh, I don't have the slightest clue. He has been building an emerging connection with Davis Mills, a fellow rookie in Houston, who took two weeks off and now looks awesome somehow, at least productive yeah, from a yeah, fantasy I perspective. I don't know. Um, so he's a cheap play at tight end and I didn't have a lot of other options there, uh, especially after nine grand on Jonathan Taylor touchdown Cortland Sutton in the flex only 4,500 at the chargers. Does, does anyone remember when him and he and drew Locke were like unstoppable at the end of 2019? Uh, I'm going to try to catch a little bit of that magic. And I mean, then, you need lightning in a bottle there for Cortland Sutton. I mean, he has not topped 50 yards since week seven. Yeah, I know. I know. It's a dart throw. And that, and that, and that includes zero touchdowns, if memory serves. Then he's, he's due. Regression to the mean. Yes. Um, yes, that is that is correct. And then two last, touchdowns, weeks five and week six. Yeah. Despite me saying, you know, I thought Dallas's defense was going to regress. 3,200 against Arizona. I, I still think you can't really turn down a number of playmakers they have like Micah Parsons and uh, Diggs who who can take one back at any point in the game. I think that that's incredibly valuable and they're one of the highest scoring defenses uh, in fantasy on DraftKings. So I think it's pretty good value at 3,200. Yeah, I think that that's fine. I, 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 I like that pick a lot. I wanted to go there um, because my Indianapolis defense was 2,900. But ultimately, I could not fit it in. I am right. I, I'm spending exactly um, perfect in terms of money. I have zero left over. I would love to get Dallas in there. Uh, my only critique, I guess, of your lineup would be that you're stacking green against the Dallas defense and limiting your ceiling. But, I mean, I don't disagree with either of those picks or the logic behind them. It just ultimately limits what 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 could be at the very, very highest of ends. Look. But, I, I'm we doing two things see, I hate. We don't see the maximum. I'm doing two things ever. I hate in that lineup, which is one is what you just mentioned. The other is the fact that I have two lions and it's not a stack. 
Um, <laughs> yeah. But, but that being said, I've never won a million dollars on DraftKings before, so maybe breaking the rules is a good idea. You know what? That's that's possible. Did I tell you? I think it was last season. Um, we were like three quarters of the way through. Or no, it wasn't quite that. It was further than that. It was like a quarter of the way through the second slate of games. So it was like 4 p.m. Uh, and I was in and, and I was in the number one spot in in this very lineup, this this three dollar entry, hundred thousand uh, winning lineup. And I ended up falling off pretty, pretty hard. But it was late in the afternoon and I was and I was in the hundred and I was in the hundred grand position. I was very disappointed that I didn't get it. Well, I think I would have definitely known that story had you won a hundred grand. I think I would have known that for sure. So maybe maybe that that might be the kind of thing I keep to myself. I don't know. Good point. No, I I I just told you. No, you, fair enough. Heather, maybe my mom. Uh, the list is short. No, no comment on whether or not I think you should tell Heather. That's between you and her. <laughs> In any case, uh, that's it for this week. Uh, we look forward to talking to you next week. Until then, find us online at notanalytics.com and on Twitter at not underscore analytics. Until then, uh, take care, and we'll talk to you soon. Everybody's present. I'm back to bring in gifts. I am everybody's present. And I'm the one smoking that shit that everybody's smelling. So you ain't gotta guess it. That's him. Watch out. And I'm the champion. Roll with those flow over those.